0: Thank you, Paul, for your uh, prayer and your scripture reading. So we begin by looking at our psalm by thinking of something that might seem a bit odd at first. You know, people despise, they dislike lots of different things. Despise might be a harsh word, but people dislike things. I, I despise turnip and Brussels sprouts. I can't stand them. Other people, they don't like cats, Strange to me, some people don't like puppies. But have you ever met anyone who does not like music? like Music at all. Like they don't like country music or, or indie. They don't like pop rock or, or jazz. They just despise music. No, I, I, I bet you haven't met someone like that before. And if such a person did theoretically exist, they're, they're few and far between. And that's because something there's something in music that that moves us as human beings that speaks to our it with many different genres. You have you have stories, you have proverbs and wisdom literature, you have letters, and you have the Psalms, a form of music, poetry inspired by God, written for God's people that we would sing to God. And the, the Psalms are probably one of the most favorite or dear beloved passages in scripture for many Christians throughout the years and probably if we went around the room here today. Because they speak to many different, a variety of different emotions that we as believers experience through life. The joys, the hardships, the questions, the doubt, the pain, the suffering. And they're written in many different circumstances. Some Psalms are written when things are going well. Some Psalms are written when things are going bad. And the psalm we're looking at today is a bit of a mystery. We don't know exactly who wrote it or when exactly it was written. But most commentators think that it was written after the Jews returned from exile in Babylon and Persia. So they're back home, but they're not yet free. And the people around them, their enemies, their rivals, they are prospering. In Israel, God's people are not. They are struggling. And so it would be easy for God's people to doubt, to question. Is is our God real? Is he worth praising? And and so we might say one of the implicit questions of the psalm is why is God worthy of praise, especially in difficult times? Or, Or perhaps put another way, when you or I, when we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, to doubt why we should worship him, This psalm speaks, it inspires us to remind us of why God is worthy of worship. And so as we hear God's word today, going through this psalm, we're going to look at three three points or three threads that emerge from this psalm that are meant to stir us as God's people, to help us remember that it is not you or me or even anything in this world that is deserving of our ultimate worship, but it is only God himself. God alone is worthy. And so we begin by looking at our first point, and that is that our God is the real God, the living God. Our God is the real God, the living God. We'll come back to verse 1 later on, and we're going to begin by looking at verse 2. The psalmist quotes this this taunt, this mock from the nations, Then they say, where is your God? You see, because God is spirit, he's invisible. We, we cannot see him. He doesn't have parts for us to see. And so, so if you're a Jew at this time, or this psalmist, you, you desire to go to, to temple and worship, you'd offer sacrifices, you would pray every day, but you've never actually seen the God you worship, the God you believe in. And, and think of us here this morning. We, we gather here this morning. We've heard some Bible already, God's word. We have sung praises to God. We watched uh, little Tessa get baptized. But did any of us see God? No, we have not seen him as we see each other here today. And and so here in Israel's day and this time, the nations are, are are saying, "You must be crazy! You you worship an invisible God? Ah, if you've never seen him, okay, okay, yes." Because we as humans, whether we are uh, whether they lived in ancient times or modern times, we tend to put our trust in what we can see. You want me to put my faith in something? Show me. I'd like to see an example. And, and because we're visual creatures, we love images. Ancient people loved statues. We love YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. We can see things. And we're typically driven and attracted by what looks good, what seems reasonable to us in the moment. And in the ancient world, an invisible God, that's a hard sell. People felt much more comfortable, if I can see the God I worship, that makes sense. So finally, I built the statue, I can see him. There he is. But the irony is, is that these gods, they cannot speak, or see, hear, smell, feel. They cannot walk, they're mute. They do nothing but just sit there. And although you, you could see an idol, therefore I can't do anything for you. It has no being, it has has no spirit. It's lifeless. And so if if you need help, an idol is of no help. It can't deliver you in your distress. And so the psalmist turns the taunt back at the nations in verse 8. He says, Those who make them will become like them. So do all who trust in them. And so here the, the point more specifically is, If you're going to make an idol and worship an idol, a false god, you're going to become like that idol. And and we might say more broadly, you will become like what you worship. And and focusing right now on the idolatry, if you worship an idol, you're going to become like an idol. Well, what does that mean? So maybe saying maybe a modern idol. So if you're saying, if I worship money, am I going to become valuable? If, if I worship the approval of people, am I going to become popular and happy? Sounds good to me. Sign me up. No, that, that is not the case. Uh, later on in Scripture, there's many different passages of Scripture we could go to, but Isaiah 44 makes it clear that all idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit them nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such such craftsmen, they're only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. And they will be brought down to terror and shame. You see, idols, whether ancient idols, statues, or whether modern idols, things we can put in God's place, money, power, sex, science, education, all idols will ultimately be put to shame and destruction. So to, to flesh that out a bit more, that means that if we put them as our ultimate purpose, our ultimate hope, trust in them to deliver us, and we worship them, we will ultimately, in the end, find them to be disappointing. That they ultimately bring sorrow because idols themselves are futile. They can never deliver the promises which they claim to give or which we want them to give us. They cannot deliver us when we're in our time of need. And so they may appear reasonable in the moment, but they never deliver. They are never true. They are never real. And we could talk about how this happens in many different ways if we make an idol of a family or if we make an idol of of sexuality and and sexual identity, if we make an idol of government. But just to focus on one, to, to think of money, you know, there, there are many reasons that people might make money an object of their worship. Maybe the, maybe the desire power. If I have money, then I can finally shape things, move things according to my will, my desire. It, it could be security. I grew up in hardship. I want money. I want that stability. I want security. I want that safety. That no one can touch me. Nothing can harm me. It could be prestige. I have a chip on my shoulder. From the bottom, well, I want to get to the top, and I want everyone to worship me, to think highly of me. I made it. I am a self-made man or woman. But well, what happens if your money's stolen? What happens if inflation rises and it becomes worthless? Maybe it's, it's taxed away. Maybe there's a stock market crash. Maybe you get your money. Maybe you become rich. And you've destroyed your family. Alienated your wife and your kids or your husband. Maybe you don't have any friends. Maybe you come to the realization... My friends don't actually love me. They're using me. See, money and the pursuit of it as an idol turns out to be counterfeit. That it was futile and empty. And by making money a god in my life, I have become futile. I have become empty, worthless, put to shame. And so the psalmist draws this contrast here. Between the bankruptcy and the futility of idolatry and idols and the real living God. Going back up to verse 3, the psalmist answers the question posed by the skeptic, by the nations. He says, Where where is your God? He answers, Our God is in heaven. So we, we cannot see him, but he is there. And he is here today, this morning, amongst us at Grace Valley. You see, the, the idea that God is in heaven does not mean that he is distant and far away. Rather, it is a picture of his dominion, of his, of his sovereignty. That, that, that old children's song is right. He holds the whole world in his hands. See, he is in control, seated above in heaven. And so we cannot see him, but he is alive. He is active. He is there, the real God, and there is no other. And so there the contrast becomes all the more clearer. On one hand, and it's a bit ironic, you have idols you can see, yet can do nothing. We worship them, we we give our lives to them, sometimes we think we have this measure of control over them, but in the end, they bring nothing but futility and folly. And on the other hand, we have the God of the Bible, who we cannot see with our eyes. But we're told that he is there in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. We did not make him. But he made us, so we cannot control him, for he controls everything. So we have gods you can see and do nothing, save no one. And a God you cannot see and can do whatever he pleases and can save anyone. There is only one God, a God who is alive and living, and it is the invisible God of the Bible who is in heaven our second point or our second thread carrying on that emerges from the psalm focuses kind of between verses 9 and 15 and it's that, that our God is the God in whom we can trust our God is the God in whom we can trust see God is real and living and, and maybe if you're a skeptic here you're kind of beginning to believe there is a God well, well this, this raises a question okay if there's God what is he like can I trust him is he good What has he done? What's his character like? You see, because God's actions and his character are intimately intertwined. God acts out of his character. So we can look to deeds he's done in the past and have assurance and trust, and we can look to him himself in his being and, and try to answer the question can I trust him? So the psalmist here says that, as well aware, that you can also be a believer. You can believe in God. I have faith in God. I sincerely love God, but it can be hard to trust him at times, especially maybe you have problems in your family, relationship, financial struggles, health, sickness. I don't know what you're going through. We can be going through many trials in our life that while we still believe in God and love him as believers, boy, it can be hard to trust him. And so in verses 9 through 11, the middle of the psalm, the psalmist addresses Israel, all you people of God. Verse 10, the house of Aaron. That's the priesthood, the clergy. Or maybe in our day, we'd say, hey, you pastors, you elders, you too. And you who fear the Lord, or or God fears. This could refer to to Gentiles who had come to believe in, in Yahweh, but had not yet been circumcised. It could just refer to another general, anyone who reveres the real God. All of you, trust in God. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Yahweh. He is your help and shield. Now, when you want to emphasize something, sometimes we get loud. Sometimes we get quiet. If you're writing, you know, all caps, that will emphasize it. Well, if you're a Hebrew, how do you emphasize something? Repetition. So three times, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. He is your help and shield. He is your help and shield right in the middle of the psalm. The high beams are on. Trust in the Lord. God is your helper. He is active. He is your aid. He is your strength when you are weak. He is the only one who can deliver you whatever your plight. As your shield, He is your defender. He protects you. Maybe you don't feel very protected right now if you're struggling. I'm convinced when we get to heaven, when we appear before God, we're going to look back on our lives and we're going to be amazed at all the things God shielded us from and that we were blind to, that we were oblivious, we weren't aware. And for most of us, if we're a believer here today, that's not new, but it is something that we need to be continually reminded of. A a great deal of the Christian faith is really remembering what we've already been taught, remembering who God is, that, that you and I, We must all trust in God. If you're a skeptic here today, the summons of scripture is that you too must come to God and trust in Him. Well, you might say, yeah, we use that language, trust in the Lord, trust in God. Yes, that's very churchy. What does that mean? Jerry Bridges, in his excellent book, Trusting God, gives a great definition. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them, despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. I'll read that one more time. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them, despite the adversity that seeks to overwhelm us. Animated movie Aladdin. There's this scene where Aladdin's trying to woo Jasmine and he's outside the palace on his magic carpet. And he's trying to convince her to come on a magic carpet ride. And eventually Aladdin says, Do you trust me? So, what did you say? Do you trust me? And Jasmine takes his hand and gets on the magic carpet ride. She trusts in him and his carpet you might say that that trusting in God leads to a whole new world for believers. And if you don't like Disney, that's okay. No judgment here. But did you drive here this morning? If you drove here this morning, did you brake? When you stopped, you put your foot on the pedal. You lay hold of your pedal. You trusted that my brakes are going to work. My car is going to function. I trust my mechanic that he actually did what he was going to do. We trusted in our car. Well, in a similar way, we are called to entrust ourselves to God himself, trusting his character, who he is, trusting his deeds, what he has done, and his promises, what he will do. See, trust is not some blind, mindless leap into the abyss. It is thoughtful, it is intentional. If faith looks to God and trusts in him, leaps into your heavenly Father's arms. That is what faith is. And he has proven that he is worthy of trust. Unlike the idols that we've heard about in the early verses that can do nothing, God, who is unseen, can do anything. And so if you're a Jew in the Old Testament, what would be the ultimate test of that? The ultimate test of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness, his love, was in the Exodus, when God, acting from his character, delivered in history his people from bondage in Egypt. He, he parted the seas, he destroyed and crushed the Egyptian army. And, the, and for a Jew, this would be something to always remember, but here, here's a bit of a, a mystery or an irony. So God who is spirit and invisible, Yahweh, our Father, who has no body, we're told in scriptures in the scriptures, Exodus 2:24. God heard his people's cries. Exodus 2:25: God saw the plight of his people. Exodus 3, God spoke to Moses. Exodus 7, with his hand, he will bring down Pharaoh and his armies. See, the invisible God in the Exodus defeated the visible gods like Ra and Pharaoh. And and this was so important to the Jews that, that they would have recited this psalm in remembrance of this during Passover. So so it's very likely that our Lord, in his last supper with the disciples, they might have read this psalm together and sung it. And and I I don't know um, what you've been going through in your life, what your struggles are, what evils you have faced in your past. But but what's very clear is is that God is an ever-present help to his people. That he will come to you in your time of need. That, That he will be your help when no one else is. So even though you cannot see him, he has been an ever-present help, he is an ever-present help, and he will always be an ever-present help. Maybe, maybe one thing to take away from that is to think about, to look back on your life and how God has delivered you and your past, how he has, been, has, how he has come to your aid in your moment of need. Listen, continuing to verses 12 and 13. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. See, God is trustworthy because he has been faithful in the past and he promises that he's going to be faithful in the future. And and we are the ones, and maybe I think sometimes men are especially prone to this, We are the ones who are often forgetful. We are the ones who are prone to wander, that we're prone to doubt. But isn't it interesting here that the psalmist says, God, who knows all things, remembers you, remembers me. Have you ever thought about that? Whatever you're going through. That the God of the heavens remembers you here this morning. That he knows you. That he has not forgotten you that he will bless his people bless you and me that we have a future hope because of him regardless of our present circumstances and if you're here today and you are really struggling it can be hard to have hope it can be hard as a christian to to pray at times to really read our bibles we all struggle with that i'm sure maybe one simple application if you're kind of down in the depths of despair is just read these two verses every day through the week. Read them out loud, hear them. If you can't bring yourself to do that, maybe you ask your spouse or even a child, read these two verses to me. Hear God's word. Hear that the Lord your God remembers you. So we have seen that he is the real and living God. We have seen that he is the God that we can trust, that we can entrust ourselves to and now our last point, as a consequence of these first two, is that we see that our God is worthy of worship. Our God is therefore, he is worthy of worship. You know, when everything's going well in life, it can be easier to worship and praise God. And we should do that, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but again, this psalm was probably written in a hard time for Israel. Where, where things, it wasn't the worst time in their history, but... It's not days of sunshine. It's not, great time, it's not a great time in their history. And from their vantage point, if you were a Jew at this time, the bad guys are winning. The bad guys are successful. And we're just struggling to get by. And it would be easy to fall into despair, to depression, to doubt, to simply, woe is me. Why is this my plight? But here the psalmist is trying not to judge, not to condemn. He's trying to encourage God's people, strengthen them, to rouse God's people, worship Him, to bring us out of ourselves. And it's not to discount your pain or suffering, not at all. But when we're hurt, when we're suffering, what does our focus tend to be? Me. Me, me, me. And here the psalmist is saying, it's not to discard your pain, but look to God. Look out of yourself. Look to him, towards him, because he is our chief end. Our purpose is to enjoy him, to glorify him, to magnify him with our lives. Where we were made to worship God, to be in communion, in fellowship, right relationship with him. And when we take this to heart, we become less self-preoccupied. And we begin, day by day, to become a bit more God-focused, God-centered. And the psalm, to emphasize that this, this worthiness and that we, it is right for God's people to praise Him, the psalm begins and ends on this note. And the psalm closes with, It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. It begins and ends with praising God. See, we might experience real hardships in life and real evil, but here the psalmist is reminding us whatever our circumstance, whatever our current feelings, God is always worthy of worship. That is why we're here. That is one of the reasons, and the the primary reason the church gathers is to worship God. And it's not because God is in need of our worship. He really needs the praise of humans so he can get by through the day. No, it is actually that we need him As the object of our worship see it's not a question friends of whether or not if we'll worship something or someone the question is who will you worship what will you worship with your life and so here's the question you who is more admirable than god who is more good who is more loving who is more holy who is better than god no one he is the ultimate best he is worthy of worship It is good for us. It is for our best that we glorify and worship Him. That we exalt in Him. That we sing praises to Him. see, we worship what we treasure. Worshiping is is, is valuing. It is revering. It is what you put worth in. Worthship. Exalt and worship yourself. And you will be miserable. And our culture is great evidence of that. Exalt and worship something in this world and it will be futile and lead to shame and destruction. Exalt and worship in God and you will find peace and joy everlasting. And so life can be hard. It can be very hard, even for believers. You know, being a Christian is not a get a jail at a free card, easy life. But life, even a hard life, is a gift from God. The the final verses imply this. That while we still have life, while we are not dead, what do you do with our life? What should we do with our life? We should praise God. The psalmist, knowing that the Lord is good, full of loving kindness and faithfulness, wants us to know in our heart that we would, that we would desire to worship Him while we still have days, while we still have breath in our lungs. The, the psalmist wants us to worship Him. And the Jews, the Jews of old, the, the first year of this psalm, the Old Testament Jews, they, they believed in the same God as we do here today. However, there are still some pretty big differences between us and them. For what, what, what would inspire, encourage them to worship him? Well, I mean, if you're an Old Testament Jew, you could look back to David and Goliath. Those were the glory days. You could look back to some of the judges, you know, Samson, Deborah, Gideon. You could look back to the Exodus, And you could be reminded of God's deliverance, His love and faithfulness, that He is good and trust in Him. And we too can rightfully look back on the exact same events and be encouraged and inspired to worship God. But oh, do we have a far greater cause to worship God than they did. Why? Because we can look back to the greatest deliverer of all and the greatest deliverance of all in the person of Jesus Christ. Where God... The invisible God is made flesh. The invisible made visible. Where the God who is in the heavens came down to earth to live amongst his people. Not as a statue, not as a counterfeit God who can do nothing, but as the real, living, moving God-man. And we can remember his great love for us on the cross, where in our place, sinners that we are, God bore the wrath of God on the cross. That he took our place. That he died for our sin. He took our shame. The destruction we rightfully deserve, he faced in our place. And on the third day, he rose from the grave and he conquered and defeated death to deliver us from death. And He gave us a sure and future hope that one day we will still die. But one day we have a, a, the sure hope, a promise of a resurrection, that our bodies, our physical bodies, will be resurrected one day. And whereas the Jews of old in this time, they could look back and remember, and they could look forward. And a Jew of old, a faithful Jew, would say, you know what? God is gracious. He is good. He will one day send a Messiah. He will one day save a Savior to save well, we know who that Messiah, that Savior is. Well, we too can look back, and then we can look forward to know, I don't know when, we don't know when or where, the day or time, but that our Lord Jesus Christ, he will return someday because he is good and faithful in his character. We, the New Testament children of God, have experienced all the more blessings than the Jews of old because of Jesus Christ. And we can be rest assured he will make things right again. And verses 17 and 18 hint at this. Those who go to the the place of silence, those who die, do not praise God. If you've been to a funeral, have you ever seen a dead body? Praise God. No. If you're a believer, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. But your body here is silent. While we still have breath, praise the Lord. May we exalt in him. But for all of us who believe in God, who trust in Jesus Christ, we've experienced this greater deliverance. And so one day we will rise from the grave and we will worship God with our mouths. Like, like that old hymn says, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. So friend, do you, do I, do we hear God's word this morning? Take courage, take heart, be encouraged that the Lord your God remembers you. Know in your heart that he is worthy of my worship and your worship, that there is none greater than him. And may you and I, may together we be able to say, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, we, hear, we are here this morning, Lord, and we praise your name for all of who you are, all that you have done and all you will do. Lord, may you be pleased with our worship today, not because we are great, but because you are gracious. Help us to focus our lives upon you. Help us to see your goodness. And Lord, if there is someone here that does not know you let know you yet, may you open their eyes so they may see you for who you are, may they come to you. And for those of us who know you, Lord, if we're struggling, help us. Help us when we're weak. Remind us of your love and faithfulness. Remind us that you are worthy. We pray this in the name of our glorious Savior Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.